it's a pleasure to be with you this evening, and we're going to continue through our series in the book of First Peter, which we've called Sojourners, Living as We Long for Home, and tonight we're going to talk about We Are God's People. We Are God's People. Let's pray together. Lord, what an honor and a privilege to belong to you. Lord, what? It's just so humbling, Father, that apart from anything in us or from us, Lord Jesus, you came down for us, and you chose us, and you saved us, and you redeemed us, and you called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. And so, Lord, help us to not lose the awe and wonder of what it means to be your people, to belong to you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. And as I was reflecting on uh, this letter this week in this passage, uh, I began to think about how in the, the letter so far, Peter seems to be really concerned about teaching the believers who they are in Jesus Christ. So it's a letter written to believers, and he continues to reinforce to them, reinforce to them, pound them with the realities of who they are in Jesus Christ and how it was that they came to know God. And, and one of the great glories of Christianity is that it gives Christ's people a supreme, all-encompassing identity out of which we now live. And so when a person becomes a Christian, they're, they're there's a fundamental shift in how we view ourselves, what, what we find our hope in, our identity in, what we find our ultimate meaning of our life in. It's, it changes everything about us. And the doctrine of the Christian life and, and our, our identity in Christ is, is incredible. It's, it's almost counterintuitive. Because if you read the Bible correctly, rather than saying uh, live like this to be a Christian, the Bible actually says, Something different. It doesn't say live like this to be a Christian. Rather, it says, hey, you're, you're now a Christian, so be who you are. In other words, it's not about behavior modification, really, because Christianity is not about behavior modification. It's about, it's about total identity transformation. God comes to you, and he recreates you. Behold, whoever is in Christ is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. He makes you into a new person. He adopts you into his family. He makes you one of his children. And then he says, now be who you are. Be who I've remade you to be. And this is huge. It's huge today. A lot of people uh, today excuse their sin by saying, well, It's just who I am. But see, the Christian doesn't have that option because the Christian, by definition, is somebody who's been fundamentally made new. (laughs) And so we can't say, well, it's who I am, because if you're a Christian, then there is no sin that's who you are. Who you are is Christ's. That's who you are. And when the Christian sins, then what you are doing is not being who you are. You're being something you're not. So stop it. (laughs) Stop being something you're not, Christian. 
Be who you are. You're Christ. You're God. You're God. You belong to him. He chose you and called you and redeemed you from the futile ways of your forefathers. Peter said, you've been born again to a living hope. You are an elect exile and inheritor of the undefiled, imperishable, unfading riches of God. You're born again, child of God. That is not merely what Christians hope to be. We don't hope to be those things as Christians. If you are a Christian, that is who you are. So be who you are. So then the call of the Christian to live a holy life then isn't some outrageous thing. It's nothing more than to say, if you belong to Christ, then, then you're his through and through. So a holy life then is just simply being who you are. And this tells us too, that if we want to change how we live, we must continually remind ourselves of who we are and of whose we are, right? And so that goes back to what we were just talking about. Sometimes I think even in the church, sometimes we get it backwards. We focus on behavior modification, behavior modification. But if you read in, in Peter, that Peter calls you to a holy life, and Paul does the same thing, but only after he has told you about a hundred other things about what Christ has already done for you. And about, how you, and about who you already are in Jesus Christ. And only in view of those things does he say, now go, be this. So if we focus on sheer behavior modification, all we're doing is putting burdens on people's backs. But if we, if we tell people, if we preach people the gospel and we tell them, and, if we, and even as Christians, if we preach to ourselves who we are and begin to really believe who we are, that's when we start to live out that new identity. And so, in this section of our uh, scripture tonight, what Peter really pounds for us, really trying to get us to believe, is who we are as God's people. Who we are as God's people, and it truly is glorious. And that's what I want to talk about tonight. And so, if you're able and willing, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. We're going to read from 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The word of God. You may be seated. So we want to see three things concerning how we are the people of God. Number one is that we are the living house of God. 
We're the living house of God. Number two, we are the honored believers of God. We're the honored believers of God. And number three, we are the covenant people of God. We are the covenant people of God. But first, number one, we are the living house of God. We see this in verses four and five. Peter continues to talk about um, that uh, we were to live holy lives. That's what we talked about last time we were in First Peter. And he follows up this charge with a reminder that as we come to Christ, uh, we come to one who, though he himself was rejected by men, he is chosen and precious in the sight of God. And that's what it says there in verse 4. And so Peter wants us to see then that like Jesus, so this is the comparison, right? He says, Jesus was a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. He says, like Jesus, we are living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a, a holy priesthood, priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so, just like Jesus, as we come to him, as we come to God through Jesus Christ, we remember then that just like Jesus, we too may be rejected by men. And that's one of the major themes of Peter's letter is living as we long for home, as living in the midst of a world that is hostile to the faith, which has always pretty much been the reality and is it will be increasingly so right here in America. And so we as followers of Christ, we have united ourselves to, to God's chosen and precious one, that is Jesus through faith. And so that means that we too, through Christ, are chosen and precious to God. And so if we be rejected by men like Christ has, it's okay. Because it doesn't matter what men appreciate, if you will, if God appreciates it. And so then we don't have to fear as a church or as God's people. We don't have to clamor for the praise or even the likability or acceptability of the church before the lost world. I'm not saying that we as Christians don't seek to win, to live winsome lives. We do. But I do think that there are some today who, frankly, they either they feel uncomfortable in their own Christian skin, or they just want so desperately for the church to be liked by the world that I feel that there are some that are willing then to downplay or remain silent on the very issues in which Christianity makes us the most distinct from the world. And that will be the temptation, right? When it is at the very, is at the very points of the greatest conflict between Christianity and the world that we will, in an attempt to get the world to like us, because who doesn't want to be, we, 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 we don't want the world to hate us. I don't want to walk outside and people to think I'm a hateful bigot, as some people accuse Christians of being, because of what I believe about you know, reality or male and female or sexuality. I don't want to be thought like that. But if it comes to honoring Christ in a specific area of, of the word that he has spoken or being liked by the world, I'll have to choose. And we must choose Christ. Jesus said, if salt loses its savor, it's good for nothing. If it's at the very points where we are salty, if it's at the very points where we are distinct from the world, but we lose our saltiness, we have nothing to offer the world. 
And so then, we as Christians, we don't live obnoxious lives, but we do live salty lives. Lives that show that we have new affections, new loves, new eyes, new minds, new ways of looking at the world because we have been made new by Christ. And so though, we would, though sure, we would like the world's affirmation, we don't have to clamor for it, and we don't need it because if you have God's affirmation, you don't need the world's affirmation. And we as Christians are going to have to learn to become comfortable in our Christian skin, no matter how strange that makes you seem to a world that, frankly, as the world keeps going the way it does, they're just not going to get it. They're not going to understand why you think the way you do, why you believe the way you do, why you act the way you do. And so you're just going to have to get used to being strange. It's a small price to pay. And Peter draws this parallel. Jesus, he says, is a living stone. The, the living aspect of that, I think Peter almost certainly has in mind uh, Jesus' resurrection. He's alive. He's a living stone. He's alive. And he says, we, like Jesus, are living stones being built together into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. I mean, just, just reflect on that a minute about what Peter is saying about the church. He is saying that we, like Jesus, are living stones that are what? That are being built together by God into a house, a, a, a spiritual house for God. That is that as you are filled with the Spirit, as you trust and believe in Christ, you are then a, a brick, if you will, in God's house. And he is putting us all together, tying us together with the bonds of Christ so that, so that he's building a building, a dwelling place. For himself to live. We are the temple of God. Not just we individually, but we corporately. God, where, where his people are, that's where God dwells. Not just individually, but together. God dwells in us as we love and serve him together. And this is astounding because he's using, I mean, the, the, the house, the word house in the Old Testament was often used to refer to the house of God or the temple or the tabernacle. And what Peter is saying here, I believe, is that the Old Testament tabernacle and temple pointed to something greater. In fact, even Solomon, when he built the temple in his uh, dedication, acknowledged that God himself did not really dwell in a temple. God, God the, the heavens, the highest heavens can't contain him. And so the, the temple pointed to something greater than itself. And Peter says that we, the church, are the temple of God. Together we form the dwelling place where God himself lives in us. And not only are, is the church God's temple, but Peter also says that we are God's priests. In the new covenant, there is a special class of priests, if you will. We're all priests. We don't offer animal sacrifices in a physical temple. We offer spiritual sacrifices to God. And that's incredible, too. Because, and what, what are some of the spiritual sacrifices? Well, there's verses that talk about it. We don't have time to go through every one of them. But praise is a spiritual sacrifice. Our lives. Says, uh, uh, Paul said to offer your life as a living sacrifice. 
holy and acceptable to God. Our lives are living sacrifice. Our hearts humbled and broken over our sin and submission to God's will is a spiritual sacrifice. The material gifts that we give to meet the needs of others and to further the spread of the gospel, those are spiritual sacrifices. And every time we praise God among his people and offer a sacrifice of praise, and every time we seek him in prayer and pray for his glory in the world and Christ's kingdom to come and for our ones to be saved and for uh, the nations to, to, to declare his praise. As we do that and as we uh, meet needs and give to missions and things like that, those are spiritual sacrifices that we are offering to God as if we were taking them into the very temple of God. That's incredible. That, that is, those are priestly functions. They're priestly duties. And as we offer such sacrifices to God, we are doing a higher duty than the priests in the Old Testament did in the tabernacle because we are fulfilling what those things pointed to. And these spiritual sacrifices, Peter says, are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's what he says. So it's only through Christ that anything that we do is acceptable to God, right? Because we, can, we, can, we can't offer anything acceptable to God, only but through Christ, everything we do in and through Christ is uh, completely acceptable to God. The Apostle Paul said that anything that does not proceed from faith is sin. So that means that even good things that people do, but it's not done out of a true knowledge and faith and love for God. Even that to God is sin because it's, it's, li- it's a life lived that's still in rebellion to him. But if through Jesus Christ and out of faith in him, then even the tiniest thing done for God, the tiniest act done out of love and faith of for God, through Jesus Christ, rises up before the throne as a beautiful sacrifice that God will accept. That's why Jesus said, whoever even gives a cup of cold water in my name will by no means lose his reward. So everything that we do, we do through Jesus Christ, and, we, and, and everything that we do for God through Jesus Christ is as if we're offering an acceptable, pleasing sacrifice to God that rises up before him. In fact, that is exactly what's happening. And so this call then first is to remember that we are the living house of God. We are the, uh, the priests of God together. Together we are his priests. Together we are the temple. That's just one reason, for example, why the, the gathering of the saints on Sunday is so hugely important. Because it's not merely individually, but it's corporately that we form the temple of God. And it's when we come together that God is most powerfully and manifestly present. And so number one, we are the living house of God. And number two, we are the honored believers of God. We are the honored believers of God. We see this in verses six through eight. Peter says, for it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. And so we see here that in verses 6 through 8, there was already some Old Testament background in Peter's mind 
when he was referring to Jesus as a living stone. So he, in verse 4, he's going somewhere with that. He has this Old Testament imagery of Jesus as the stone. And in this verse, verses 6 through 8 here, uh, he sees Jesus as the fulfillment of Isaiah 28, 16. Isaiah 28, 16. And which is the verse that he quotes there. I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So if you look back in the context of Isaiah 28, the people of Israel and Jerusalem have embraced lies and deceit. And they were saying that judgment would not come upon them for their sins. So that's the context of Isaiah 28. And God tells them, no, no. Judgment is surely coming upon you for your sins. But then he says this. He says, I'm laying in, stu- uh, in Zion a stone, a chosen uh, cornerstone, chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And so in Isaiah 28, 16, God is speaking of this cornerstone that he's laying, that judgment is surely coming for them because of their sins. But if you build your life on this cornerstone that I'm laying... If you trust in this cornerstone that I am putting down, you'll stand firm when the flood of my judgment comes against you. So that's what he's saying. And then Peter is saying, Peter says then that this cornerstone is Christ. That Isaiah was talking about Christ. That Christ is the cornerstone that God was laying such that judgment is coming for our sins. But if we build our lives upon the cornerstone of Christ... We won't be put to shame, but we won't, we won't be swept away when the flood of God's judgment comes. And then Peter says in verse 7, so the honor is for you who believe. What honor, that, what honor is he talking about? The honor uh, is the, the root uh, of the word honor there is the same word that is translated precious uh, in verse 6. A cornerstone chosen and precious. It's the same uh, root there, and so there is a certain there's a certain preciousness. There's a certain honor that is for for who for those who believe, right? And we, I mean, we we've already talked about that uh, to some uh, degree now. The honor of what it means to be a Christian. That is to be a Christian means that we are those who have been chosen by God to be forgiven of our sins and to have life and breath and everything. That is that we've been spared from God's just wrath. That we have an indestructible destiny of eternal joy in the presence of God because we belong to his son. That we have the privilege of offering acceptable sacrifices to the God of the universe that truly do bring him pleasure and praise. There is no honor like being a Christian. And we receive that honor not because we deserve it, but because we have united ourselves to the ultimately honorable one who is Jesus Christ. The honor is for those who believe. But, Peter says, but not everyone believes. For those who do not believe, he says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. And so Peter gives this sharp contrast of the great honor of the chosen and precious cornerstone and, th- and that honor that is shared with those who trust in him. But conversely, 
the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And now he's actually quoting a different verse that actually talks about a cornerstone as well. This verse is Psalm 118, 22. When it says, um, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. What does this mean? Well, Jesus actually quotes this verse in explanation of the parable of the tenants. Okay? You remember the parable of the tenants? In this parable, there's a master who owned a vineyard, and he rented out the vineyard uh, to tenants. And the way it would work is that, you know, he would go, and they, the way they would pay rent for the vineyard is by giving the master a por- the por- his portion of the, the fruit that was born on that vineyard, right? But in the parable of the tenants, you remember what happens? The master would send his servants, but then the tenants, rather than giving them the master his fruit that he deserves, they would beat the servants. And then some of them they killed, and some of them they stoned, right? And then at the end, the, it says that the master then decides to send his son because he thinks, well... They might have beat my servants, but they'll respect my son. But this is what Jesus said in Matthew 21. He says, when therefore the owner, uh, well, well, and if you remember what happens with the son first, they, they killed the son, right? And they killed the son as well in the parable, thinking that if they killed the son, then the vineyard could be theirs because the son was the heir of the, of the vineyard. So they're thinking, well, if we kill the son, then maybe we can have the vineyard for ourselves. And this is what Jesus says at the end of the parable of the tenants, Matthew 21. He says, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They answered, they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read it in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it was marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Do you see what Jesus is saying? This is strong language here. He's saying that the Jews, especially the religious leaders, were wicked tenants. They were supposed to serve and to bear fruit for God, but instead they continually rebelled against him. And when Jesus and when God sent them prophets to try to turn their hearts and to get back what he was due, they killed and beat and stoned his prophets, even to the point of killing his own son. And what is Jesus saying? Well, it's pretty clear. He's saying that what's God going to do? He's going to take the vineyard. He's going to take the kingdom from the Jews and give it to who? To a people bearing its fruits. He's going to give it to a people who do what? Who love him, who serve him, who bear fruit for him, for his kingdom and for his glory. And that's what Jesus is saying, and that's how he interprets the passage. And then finally, Peter says this, this uh, difficult line here. He says, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Jesus goes, he quotes Matthew, uh, the Psalm 118, uh, he quotes both verses. Peter only quotes one, but in the Psalm 118, 22 to 23, 
it says, the stone that the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone, verse 23. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And so making the rejected stone the cornerstone is the Lord's doing. He willed it to be that way. Why? So that it would be marvelous in our eyes. Marvelous in our eyes. And to just, we ha- I think we have to take what Peter says here at face value. The passage uh, relates, I think, to the very first sermon that we talked about in verse 1 and 2 there, when it says we're elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And so it, it relates to um, uh, that, that Peter understands that those who believe are those who are chosen by God. And those who believe are those who God see that is his word has done a supernatural birth of new work in our hearts and in our minds. And conversely, those who do not believe stumble because they disobey the word, as Peter said, as they were destined to do. That is, I think we have to say that unbelief is ultimately a part of God's plan too. That some believe and some don't, ultimately because God is behind it all for his purposes so that history would be marvelous in our eyes. And that's hard to grasp, and so I'm going to try to give us some things to help us understand it. One of the first things that we must understand when we're talking about how this the doctrine of election works is this, is that number one is that God as creator has full rights over his creation. And basically what that means is that God can do whatever he wants with anything or anyone he wants and not do anyone any wrong because God doesn't owe anyone anything. In fact, this is what the Bible says in Romans chapter 9, verse 21. Paul says, Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Paul is saying that as the potter can take one lump of clay and make a beautiful vase with one and then a trash can out of the other, he's saying, and all the while doing the clay no wrong, God can do what he pleases with his creation. That's, it's, that's a hard truth to take in sometimes, but I think it's reality. I mean, I think it's the clear teaching of the Bible. In other words, God is bigger than us. God doesn't owe anyone anything. And so it creates, it, it, helps, us, it helps us to see a God that's more than just a bigger version of me. He's, something on, he's somebody on a totally different level than me. A totally different plane of existence. And so that's one aspect of it. And the second aspect of it is this, is that the Bible always teaches that humanity is always responsible for their sin and their rejection of God. And so, and so I think we must say that the two teachings are compatible. How they are compatible is a mystery. That's mysterious. But that both are clear teachings of the Bible, I think, is quite true. That is, God is both sovereign over everything including who will and will not be saved. And at the same time, man is still responsible for their rejection of God. And I believe the key to this is Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Now you could go back and read Deuteronomy 29. And if you read it, what you'll find is that that's a passage where God is, where where. Uh, Moses is basically telling Israel that they're going to disobey God and break his covenant. I mean, it's basically, it's basically what it says. And he understands that this is mysterious. And he concludes that line by saying, 
Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So do you see what Moses is saying? It's almost, he's, he's addressing this exact issue. He's saying that on the one hand, these things are mysterious because God's in control and, and certain things are going to happen according to what God wills them to be. And on another hand, the things that are revealed belong to us to our children uh, forever, that we may do what? That we may do all the words of the law, that we may do what? What God has told us to do. So in other words, the reality of God's sovereignty and our finiteness requires us to look at the world from two different perspectives. There's God's perspective and there's our perspective. We can't act from God's perspective because we're not God. Only God can act from God's perspective, and he's in control of everything. But our responsibility, and this is what Moses said, the secret things belong to the Lord. Our responsibility is not to try to, God, is not to, try to discern God's secret will. Though there are things that belong to God that God doesn't have to tell us. Our responsibility is to do what? To obey what has been revealed. You see that? We have to act from our perspective. Our perspective is this. God has spoken, and so our responsibility is to act as what has been revealed. And so I would say this, that Peter, far from wanting to confuse people about who's elect and who's not, the answer is simple. The, the word that has been revealed to us is what? The gospel. The gospel is what? Jesus Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He rose from the dead in accordance with the scriptures, and he's coming back. And if you believe in him and repent of your sins and trust in him and follow him, you will be forgiven of your sins and brought into his everlasting kingdom. What is that? That is what has been revealed to us. Believe it, and you will be saved. That is what has been revealed to us. That's what's been revealed. And so the mystery, and so yes, this mysterious, this is the mystery of God's sovereignty. And we can say, I think we can say, and this is what Peter is telling the believers. He's telling them, and because you do believe, that's how we know that what? That you're chosen. That's how we know. Well, can I just say, well, if I don't believe, then I wasn't chosen? Well, I would say that the Bible says that that's an absurd question. Because what's revealed, the same thing that has been revealed to me has been revealed to you. So don't bother your mind about trying to figure out what, you know, what God's secrets are because they're not for you. Here's what's for you. Repent and believe and you will be saved. That's what's for you. So don't bother your mind about it. Just obey, believe, trust, and you will be saved. And the ultimate point, I would say Peter's point, he's not trying to boggle Christians' minds. He's trying to actually help us, right? He's trying to encourage believers in what? In the midst of suffering. And what could bring us more encouragement in the midst of great suffering by saying, hey, you're God's chosen people. You're God's chosen people. And so he wants to strengthen us and he wants to help us and he wants to give us confidence in who, in that the same God who chose us is the same God who will sustain us, is the same God who will see us through to the very end, is the same God who will make sure that we see that imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance kept in heaven for us. Because the honor is for those who believe. So believe. <laughs> And you can share in this honor with us. And so, number one, we are the living house of God. Number two, we're the honored believers of God. And finally, number three, we are the covenant people of God. 
Peter says, but you, so in contrast, right? In contrast to the unbeliever, he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So contrary to the unbelieving, we are God's chosen race. We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. And so he's, he's trying to tell us who we are and to take hope in that and to take comfort in that. Regardless of what the world, the unbelieving world puts against us. And he, what is striking about this passage, and this is important, is that he uses Old Testament language that was used of Israel. But he uses it for the church. Exodus 19.5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So the same language. So Israel was what? God's chosen nation. Right? He chose Abraham. He didn't choose everybody else. He chose Abraham and made him into a nation and said, you're my people. You're my treasured possession. You're my people to live for me. But of course, they broke the covenant. And so in the new covenant, the new covenant then, God, since they broke the covenant, God gave a new covenant, not merely for Jews, but for all who believe the gospel, for all who trust in Christ. And And then those who trust in Christ are who? God's chosen people, God's royal priesthood, God's holy nation. That's amazing. Think about it. Royal priesthood. What is that? The the Exodus 19 passage said, a kingdom of priests. We're kings and we're priests. That's astounding. God's holy nations. Why? And so we are God's people. We are the new covenant People of God. That's why we exist. And why do we exist? Why does Peter say we exist? He says, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We've been called out of darkness into God's marvelous light so that we could tell people how great God is. Has anyone in this room been called out of darkness? Is anyone in this room walking in the light? That's on purpose. It it happened for a purpose, and the purpose is this, so that you can proclaim the excellencies of the one who did that for you. So that you can tell others about it. So that they, Lord willing, might be brought out of their darkness into marvelous light. And so that's what we exist to do. That's why he's called us out of darkness to light, to proclaim that to others, to proclaim it to our ones, our family, our neighbors, our coworkers, everyone, to proclaim it with our lives, to proclaim it on Sundays as we come eager and expectant to worship God as we sing loudly the praises of our God and Savior. As we get in the closet to pray that God's kingdom come, that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And as we pray for the salvation of our ones and for the the advance of the gospel into places where Christ is yet to be named. And as we seek all these things, we are proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light.
And so let's proclaim it. Let's proclaim it. Let's not be ashamed that we have been called out of darkness into the light. No, not everybody's not going to receive it the same way. And lots of people will, frankly, they won't like the fact that you are suggesting to them that they're still in darkness. But that's not up to us. We proclaim the excellencies of him. And then Peter concludes with this incredible uh, verse. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do you remember what it was like not being a Christian? Sometimes we forget what it was like not being God's people. But Peter exhorts us to remember because he was saying once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You see, everybody in this world is craving for something. And one of the greatest cravings of humanity, because it's what we were made for, is to belong. But see, a lot of people, they find their belonging in the wrong things. And Peter is saying, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. In Christ, you belong to that one thing that you were made to belong to. The one that you were made to belong to. And that's, we were sinners, we were rebels headed for hell. But God looked down and called us and said, you are mine and made us his people. And now it's our privilege to proclaim it that others might receive it. And so as we close this evening, I just want us to remember tonight what a privilege it is to belong to God. To belong to God. And what a privilege we have of proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And as we proclaim that, we can take heart that God will work and act just as he did this morning. In the hearts of others. You see, God's in control. And then sometimes that may be scary. But actually, it shouldn't be scary. It should actually give us great confidence. Right? Because if God's in control, then guess what? God can do whatever he wants. And so this person over here who might think, well, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. Well, guess what? Not if God gets a hold of them, they won't. Because God can turn them around. And God does what he wants. And so it shouldn't discourage us. It should encourage us to plead all the more to what? To a sovereign and powerful God who can save. Let's pray. Thank you this evening, Lord.